This is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Megan Pitcock, and with me today is author of How and How Not to Be Happy, Dr. Jay Budzichewski. Okay, so to start, we're going to be talking about your book, How and How Not to Be Happy. For my first question, you structure the book in a very interesting way in talking about first why happiness and then the different types of happiness and sort of how the modern culture sees it and then as a wrap-up of, well, what does that actually mean? Why did you structure it in that way? And what does that mean as far as what happiness actually is? Well, I wanted to, um, I wanted, well, first of all, as to why part two is before part three, I wanted to begin with all the mistakes people make about happiness before I, I said more about where ultimate happiness is, is really to be found. But in part one, where I'm talking, why even ask about happiness and how do we go about this, I suppose you might, if you really wanted to use a $10 word, you might call that the methodology section. That's what uh, scholars would call it if this were really a scholarly book. But um, but I, I had in mind something a little simpler. I just wanted to talk about the fact that the way we don't usually get to very good answers when we talk about happiness because we go about asking the question in such silly ways. And we confuse happiness with things that aren't happiness, and we... Um, and we uh, we get stuck on certain notions that we can just uh, administer uh, survey questionnaires and tally up the answers, and that'll tell us what happiness is. So I, I thought I needed to begin with a little bit of that. But I told my readers, look, if you if you aren't interested in talking about how to ask the question, then you can skip that. We can just go straight into part two and talk about what happiness isn't and what it is. It's clear that you pull heavily from ancient philosophical ideas about love, happiness, and the like, especially Thomas Aquinas. Um, What do you think the modern ideal of happiness loses when it ignores those ancient ideas? Well, first of all, I I tried not to... um, You're right, of course. I mean, I did do that. I tried not to just uh, deal with those old guys like, like Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, but with some people in the modern era, too. Uh, I'm citing all kinds of people because what I'm trying to do is continue a conversation that's been going on for centuries and uh, encourage people to be more reflective about this. One of the things that we lose is that we aren't reflective. We just say, well, happiness is, happiness is whatever you make it, make it to be, or, um, or, we, um, or, we, or we, we, we misframe the questions. Uh, or we will confuse happiness with pleasure. And I wanted to just call attention to the fact that not everybody's made those mistakes. Some people have been pointing out for a long time that we can, uh, we can save ourselves an awful lot of aggregation and, uh, aggravation and trouble by, um, by, by learning a few insights, and then we can see whether by any chance we can get a little further. What drew you to write this book? What drew you to, me to do it? Well... Mm-hmm. I would say, Megan, three things. Um, first of all, when I was a young man, uh, I was dreadfully, dreadfully unhappy myself. I had, um, I had abandoned my faith. I, I had even abandoned a belief in a real difference between good and evil. I thought we made it up. I didn't think we were personally responsible for our actions. I was in a very bad place. And um, I was so happy I wouldn't have committed suicide, but I, I used to sometimes just wish I would die. Uh, well, when after God brought me back out of that and I reflected on it, I found that um, um, 
that I I had learned something from this experience. I knew how to recognize the signs of happiness and unhappiness and others a little better and to have a little more compassion for them when they were unhappy. So that was one reason. A second reason is that um, uh, I see such unhappiness among a lot of my students. There's, there's, there's not a terrible amount of it. Once I asked some of my students, well, what is happiness? And the first half dozen of them gave variations on the answer, happiness is nothing but absence of pain and suffering. And now that's just so sad. I said, I said, you're telling me what it isn't. Can't you tell me any positive element in happiness? Can't you tell me what, what you think it is? Uh, we, and then we can discuss those, whether those answers are right. And they, uh, they couldn't do it. It was only absence of pain. The pain, I think, that they must have been experiencing pain, and it was so blinding their, their eyes that they just couldn't consider another, another possibility. And yet, and yet, uh, uh, Megan, they would say things at other times like, I am having an awesome life. Well, what kind of an awesome life is it if, if you think that happiness is nothing but absence of pain? Uh, the, the third reason is that um, this is a more scholarly reason, I guess, a more technical reason. A few years ago, I wrote a, 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 a dreadfully long book, about 650 pages, uh, in a line-by-line analysis of what Thomas Aquinas said about the subject. And I learned a lot from it, and I, I thought I want... I wish a book like this is not going to be read by more than some a few scholars and students, and I want some of this to be available more broadly. So I wrote I wrote my own book, and that's what this is. It's this. It's I'm I'm not necessarily agreeing identically with uh, Aquinas at every point or doing everything just like he did. I, I I'm I'm on my own here, but I. But I did have a lot of advantage from learning from him. So I guess that's the three reasons. It was the experience of happiness, when, of unhappiness when I was a young man. Um, it's seeing unhappiness around me, especially in many of my students, but other people too. And it's, um, and it's the preparation that I had in, in being, I guess you could say, learning at the feet of the master when I wrote the other book. Mm-hmm. So then, after reading your book, then what do you hope someone would take away from it? Well, I hope that that they would take away a couple of things. I hope, first of all, that they'd be spared some of the big mistakes that we make, thinking happiness lies in pleasure, uh, or thinking that happiness lies in wealth. Not very many people will admit to believing that, by the way, but they do believe it. Or that it lies in, uh, you know, in in having meaning, and it doesn't matter what meaning you have, <laughs> which is a big mistake. Uh, it has to be a true meaning, or your life is just futile. Um, so I, w- I wanted to, to then to take away some of the some of the uh, the discoveries of the errors, so that they wouldn't fall into them. I also wanted to give them hope. I I wanted people not to settle. People will. Some, I had a student once, a graduate student in one of my classes, who said, "Well, you know, we our, our happiness is just not not very complete. We, we were really unhappy all the time, and that's just how it is." She was very bitter, and said, "We just have to settle." I thought, "Oh my, doesn't she want something more?" And uh, I want to encourage people not to settle. I don't mean that we should be obsessed all the time and thinking, am I happy yet? Am I happy yet? Am I happy yet? That's not a path to happiness. But I mean that, um, that we, shouldn't, we shouldn't settle for 
misery. God intends joy for us. And I guess the last thing is that I want them to take away is this. And it's about two different kinds of happiness. Do you want the, the fragmentary, incomplete, and vulnerable happiness that's attainable in this life? Then practice the virtues. They aren't going to make you happy by themselves, but you're, you're not a ghost of a chance of happiness without them, Megan. They help us to live so that the good things that come our way are actually good for us instead of bad for us, and they help us to bear up in misfortune. And do you want the perfect and complete happiness that leaves nothing to be desired? Well, that lies nowhere else but in the vision of God's face, in which, which we only have glimpses and reflections of in this life. So, by all means, do those other things that I just mentioned, but seek God with all your heart. I don't think we can lift ourselves up to Him by our own, by our own powers. That's the height of arrogance. But it's reasonable to hope that He may lift us up to Himself and that and he he has said something about the matter. Mm-hmm. And why Christianity specifically? What makes Christianity sort of the key to happiness? Well, I, I, I do say, I, you know, I, I, I know a lot of people reading my book are God-phobics. They, don't wanna, mm-hmm. they, don't, they say, don't give me any of that religious jazz. And I promised them early in the book, look, I don't even deal with the God stuff until way close to the end. And so I hope that you'll stay with me until then, even if you jump ship then, so that you at least get something for yourself uh, about the happiness of this life. And so I don't want to give the impression that this is a religious book straight through. I do end in saying that the uh, complete happiness is found only in God, and you ask, well, why Christianity? Well, look, first of all, a lot of the other religions aren't even about about that. Buddhism, for instance, thinks that... um, thinks that uh, uh, that the object is to avoid suffering, and suffering arises from desire, and desire arises from the illusion that you exist, that you are a self, and you have to lose that illusion, which means you have to become annihilated. Now, I don't think that's a solution to our problem. And besides, if you have to become annihilated and then you won't be so miserable anymore, who is it, if you don't really exist, if you're an illusion, who is it that's being annihilated? So, I mean, so you can, you can knock some of these uh, faith traditions out of the running, even though they may say some good things, some true things. You can knock some of them out of the beginning from the beginning. Um, we also, I think, need to know more. You can work out philosophically, I, I believe, that God exists and that... Our happiness would have to use, would have to lie in the highest use of our highest powers, which are the powers of our mind, and we would have to see the highest object of those powers, which would be to see the face of God. But now you think about it, we cannot do that in this life by our powers. So God would have to help us. He would have to say how this is done and give us the the power. Now there aren't there are only a couple of traditions. That's, that talk about God helping us and God communicating with us and giving us a revelation. There's Judaism, which Christianity does acknowledge as its older brother religion. There's Islam, which abandons much of what uh, Judaism and Christianity had taught. And then there's, and then there's, there's Christianity. So it makes, it, makes, uh, it, makes, it makes sense to me. I, I discuss the fact that even though what we know by revelation exceeds what we could have found out by reasoning alone, it's reasonable to believe in revelation. Because it, I mean, you think about it, it's reasonable to believe it is necessary. I mean, you know, we really need this extra information. It's reasonable to believe that it's possible 
God has the power to reveal himself to us, to speak to us if he wants to. It's reasonable to believe that it's likely, because we can find out even by reasoning that God is good. I believe it's reasonable to believe that it's authentic, because it's confirmed by reliable witnesses, and it's reasonable to believe that it's confirmed, because um, faith isn't just subjective confidence. There's actually a foretaste a foretaste of that which we don't fully experience in this life, of uh, flashes and glimpses of uh, God himself. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Megan Pitcock, and I'm talking with Dr. Jay Buczyczewski. Of the different types of things that people equate to happiness that you talk about in your book, do you think there's one that sort of takes the highest precedence and... Right now, there's a lot of people that are depressed. Do you think that that has an effect on that? Okay, I missed the uh, because uh, the the connection was a little weak. I missed the very first first one. You mentioned one of those ideas, and you were asking me about that idea. What oh yes, um, of the different uh, types of happiness that you talk about that people equate with true happiness. Um, do you think that there is one that sort of um, rises above the rest as a problem or just is the thing that people focus on um, to the detriment of finding true happiness? Well, there, I, think it's, I think it's pretty noble. Uh, there have been some people who have said that, uh, that, that happiness lies in virtue. They're mistaken, actually. The Stoics tried to make that work. They thought, they, they thought that the, the truly virtuous people person would be independent of everything outside himself. Even if his friends abandoned him and he was being tortured, he'd be happy, and uh, he could be starved, he could be abandoned by his friends, and he wouldn't really need them, he wouldn't need anything, because whether anything is really good or bad is all in your mind anyway. I think that's dreadfully wrong. But there is a sort of a nobility to the idea that happiness lies in virtue. Uh, you do need other things, and I think the Stoics got what virtue is a little wrong anyway. You do need other things, but um, but even though virtue by itself isn't sufficient for happiness, um, it, it certainly is a necessary condition. You, uh, If you don't have it, you're not going to have any happiness. Let's take, for instance, suppose you have the... It, it, it's it's difficult to be happy if you don't even have enough, if you're not even able to put food on the table to feed your starving children. But let's suppose that you have that good fortune. You know, Aristotle pointed out that good fortune in excess really might better be called bad fortune. People think, oh well, I, I need to put food on the table, so wealth is good. Well, if wealth is good, then more wealth is better. More and more and more. And uh, too much is dreadfully bad for you to know when to stop and to know how to use what you have. You need virtue. Or take friendship. Um, we all know that we need, we need friendship. We need the communion, communion with other people. But how do you do that? What, what is involved there? Uh, the, we, there are virtues of, of friendship. We need to have those things. So I would say that, that even though the ones who, who thought that, that happiness lay in virtue alone were were mistaken still the happiness of this life does does depend pretty critically on it so i think that the i think the worldly wise man's view you know cultivate virtue and hope for luck is is from the point of view of this life which is not the ultimate point of view i think that's not a bad idea there's some meat behind it it uh it's it's nothing to sneeze at it gives you gives you something to guide your life into and to uh, teach your children 
And right now, there's sort of an increase in the amount of people who have anxiety or are depressed and are um, diagnosed as such. Why do you think that is? And do you think that there's a way forward to help fix that problem? Well, there has been unhappiness in every age, but it does seem to be true that acute misery and anxiety are on the rise. Um, People say, if you can trust this, people, it's possible to be confused about how happy or unhappy you are. But people do say to the pollsters that, uh, that they're less happy now than, than any time in recent recorded history since we've been asking these questions. Um, why? Well, I think that there are a lot of reasons. I think one is that we have, as a, as a society, really lost touch with God. Even when people talk about these things, they blur it and they turn it into something relativistic. They say, oh, uh, you, oh you're talking about religion. I'm not a religious person. That's like saying, I, I don't particularly care for eating peanuts. It's not a personality trait. And it's not about religion per se. It's about God. Um, So this is one thing. We've lost that. We've lost this source of reason. Uh, Another is that we've become uh, relativists. It's very hard to to be serious about the practice of the virtues if you don't believe in any. It's very hard to be serious about seeking, seeking what is authentically meaningful if you believe that any meaning will do as long as it makes you feel good. Uh, like the fellow who said, um, well, I, I know of a fellow in a, in a 12-step group. 12-step people say uh, in one step, I trusted myself to a power greater than myself to overcome my alcoholism or whatever. And the fellow said, well, for me, that greater power is electricity. I'm sorry, but this relativism is just not going to work for you. So these are all problems that people have. The circumstances of modern life are very difficult, too. It is a whirl of, of busyness pursuing wealth, pursuing wealth. People don't admit that that's what they want, but my students often choose their majors, they choose their future careers. On that consideration alone, they might not even like what they're studying, but they say, but this is where the, this is where the big bucks are, or at least the bigger bucks. That's a huge mistake. And we don't have any time any longer, don't permit ourselves any time to just be quiet and to be still. We, we are afraid of what our thoughts might tell us, of what we might hear whispered by our minds into that silence. And so we don't permit ourselves silence. We walk around with earbuds in our ears. We have all kinds of noise constantly. We're always on social media. We're always watching the, watching the, uh, the tube where we, uh, we, we have to be making noise all the time. And I think that's, that's dreadfully bad for us. Still one more. <laughs> I'm giving you a, probably a bigger answer than you wanted, Megan. No, no, that's um, interesting. We, we have lost the understanding of what love is. We think it's an emotion and not a commitment to the true good of another person. We have lost the understanding of uh, marriage. We say, oh, I have a committed relationship. Let me tell you, you know when you've got a committed relationship? You're, if you're married, you're committed. If you're not married, you don't have a commitment. You can walk out. Uh, the so-called committed relationship is more like a practice for divorce than a practice for, uh, for, uh, for marriage. Uh, and people don't understand these things. And then they say, why is my family breaking up? Why are my friend- friendships so shabby? Why do my kids hate me? Why, 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 why do, do, the, do the promises of, of wealth that I got in pursuing this career 
why are those promises so empty and I'm not happy? Why is it that, okay, I've got three new cars, but my, but my, but my next-door neighbor has four? <laughs> We're not going to be happy this way, Megan. This is just not the path. You don't worry about those things. Now, this is the thing that's hard to understand. In every one of those huge mistakes, there's some grain of the truth. The person who mistakenly thinks, wealth, wealth, that'll bring me happiness, he's not wrong that we need a certain minimum of material goods in order to avoid destitution, feed our children, uh, keep a roof over our heads, sure. But he carries that way too far. The person who thinks that we need meaning, he's right, but you need, you need meaning in the truth. The person who thinks that we need, uh, that we need uh, friendship and love, that's very true. But, you know, love has the fragrance of eternity in it. And that's one of the things that makes it so beautiful. But the eternal thing isn't myself and the face of my friend. It's what the face of my friend reflects, which is the light of God. And, you know, earthly friends cannot be everything to each other. Uh, And that mistake can uh, lead people into great desperation, too. There's a grain of truth, even in the errors, and that's what makes the errors so attractive and makes them such snares to us. Great. And where can people find um, How and How Not to Be Happy? Where can they find what? Uh, The book. The book. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's sold, uh, I guess, by just about all of the online booksellers. You can get it from Amazon. You can go straight to the publisher, which is Regnery. Um, you could probably get it in any of the other on- online sellers. You could go to my, I haven't put up the uh, link, but I'm going to be today. I'm going to put up a link to it at my own website, uh, which is the Underground Thomist. Then t- all you got to do is remember the title of the book, How and How Not to be happy by the guy with the unpronounceable name. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Oh, sure. It's my, been my pleasure. And uh, I hope that your, uh, your interviews get a lot of listeners. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. With me has been author of How and How Not to Be Happy, Dr. Jay Bujicevsky. My name is Megan Pidcock, and you are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM.